for about uh, 10 years, we lived in a rather upscale suburb of Chicago, and never once during those years do, do I ever remember seeing anyone in public uh, dressed like they were about to go hunting. No safety orange, no camouflage at all. And that's why I think it surprised me that when we next moved to Pennsylvania, that most people looked like they were just about to go hunting or just come back from hunting. Uh, just a week or so after I'd moved there, I was in a department store and in the electronics area and looking at something on a shelf that I was thinking about purchasing. I stepped back to get a better look and I collided with somebody. Turned around, there's three guys standing behind me. They're all dressed in camouflage. And I apologized and I said, you guys blend in so well, it's like you're invisible. And, and they thought that was hilarious. I learned that uh, camouflage seemed to be a fairly acceptable means of clothing, where, whatever the event. And, and then when I moved to Texas, I found out that that's probably pretty true here too. And... Uh, I've learned that camo is considered proper attire for funerals. In fact, I did a wedding here on campus where the bride, the groom, and the maid of honor all wore camouflage. I felt out of place, underdressed. This morning, I want to point out a type of camouflage that is not appropriate. And that's when God's people blend in so well that they're no different than the culture around them. Our series from the book of Judges is called Broken, How God Uses Defective People. And we're all broken. We all fall far short of the glory of God. And our world is broken in sin. One of the many ways in which we're broken is when someone like me, who claims to follow Jesus, camouflages my identity. I do that when I talk, when I think, when I act like those who don't know Christ at all. So this morning... We're going to see how God works when his people do that, when his people adopt the values and the behavior of their culture, and what we should do about that. Well, that was the situation Israel was in, the people of God, the nation of Israel. They had rebelled against their God after all he had done for them. They had turned their back on him, and God then disciplined his children, as God does. God disciplines his people like a good father when they do not obey him, and we, we need to pay attention to that discipline. Israel did not. God disciplined them by allowing the enemy, the Philistines, to come in and conquer Israel and to oppress them for 40 years. And during all that time, Israel did not cry out to God for help. They didn't turn to him in that way. Instead, they cozied up to the enemy. They adopted the pagan culture of the Philistines. So eventually, God raised up a leader a deliverer named Samson, and we've been studying his story the last several weeks. Uh, and Samson was not a paragon of virtue. In fact, he was just as broken as the rest of his people. Uh, last week in Judges chapter 14, we saw how Samson's lust led him to uh, propose to a Philistine girl, a girl from the enemy camp. And in doing that, he rejected the counsel of his parents not to do that. In doing that, he disobeyed the law of God. Uh, because he wanted to go forward in this. But before the, the marriage was consummated, and just all the festivities had been going on, and just at the end of that, Samson got angry and he left. He left the, the bride at the altar. And as a result, uh, 
the bride's father, to save face, to save money, uh, gave her to the best man to marry. Samson doesn't know that. He's mad. He's angry. He goes home, and it's a mess. Well, this next chapter only gets messier. You might ask, where is God in this? Hope to see that. Verse 1. Later on, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room. But her father would not let him go in. So Samson has cooled off. Uh, His anger has subsided and his hormones have kicked back in again and he wants to go consummate this uh, marriage and he decides to take a gift to the woman that he left at the altar. Now I am not a a really romantic guy, my wife can tell you that. I'm pretty sure I would have tried jewelry instead of a young goat, but you know, who's to know? Samson figured that might work. So uh, he tries, verse 2, but her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you thoroughly hated her, he said, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. I hope the older sister daughter was not listening to this. That shows you some of the dysfunction of this family and this culture. Samson fit right in. Uh, But this response immediately infuriates him. And he feels like a fool. And so he decides to get even with the entire Philistine nation. And here we begin the the devastating cycle of revenge. These first eight verses of the chapter show us the cycle of revenge. Samson takes a pair of foxes or jackals and ties their tails together, fastens a lighted torch between them, and then sets them loose. He does this 150 times. Uh, I say foxes or jackals, the word can be either one. The jackals tend to be easier to catch. They travel in packs. Uh, it doesn't tell us how he caught this many, uh, but, uh, and, but he, he, it doesn't say how long it took him. But it kind of sounds to me more like a fraternity prank than anything else. I mean, this is kind of weird stuff. And the terrified foxes or jackals run everywhere, setting fields on fire, and the results are devastating. All that wheat that had been collected, harvested, and stacked was burned, as well as all the grain that was still in the fields was burned, uh, waiting to be harvested, lost. The vineyards, the the olive groves were destroyed, the Bible says. So here we have wheat, uh, grapes, and olives. Those are the staples of that economy. This prank single-handedly brought down the Philistine financial system. So... Verse 6, when the Philistines asked, who did this? They were told, Samson, the the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his friend. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Now notice they don't mess with Samson right off. They know enough now that he's more than they can handle. But they take out vengeance on this poor uh, young woman and her father. Remember, this is the very thing she was trying to avoid in the last chapter when she told Samson's secrets so that she could save her family from being killed. And now she gets killed anyway. Uh, and and the, the violence just continues to escalate. Uh, and Samson is not going to stop. Verse 7, he said to them, Since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Edom. So this is the cycle of revenge. You do something to me and I do something to get even. And each act of retaliation is worse than the one before. That's what happens when you try to seek vengeance. There's no getting even. 
trying to, to, to get even for the wrong done to you is this unending cycle of revenge that you get stuck in. And Christ calls his people to break from that cycle. We see this uh, taught in the New Testament. Uh, Romans 12, 19 says, Do not take revenge, my friends. I will repay, says the Lord. This is God's word to his people, to those of us who've put our trust in Christ. We're called not to take vengeance because Jesus has paid it all. Uh, to, to, uh, to understand that the scores are settled by what God has done for us uh, through the cross of Jesus. Uh, that Jesus made it possible for us to break from the cycle of revenge. You might be caught in that cycle of revenge right now in some way or another. To understand that if you follow Jesus, to, to, that God has made a way and, and called you from that cycle to break that cycle because Jesus has paid it all. Now Samson's story, the, the vengeance continues and it just gets worse. The Philistines go looking for Samson and they surround Israel's tribe of Judah, the tribe from which Jesus is eventually brought into this world. Uh, Judah, the people of Judah, are terrified. The enemy's surrounding them. And the Philistines say, what we, just, we just want to do to Samson what he did to us. And so in order to save themselves, Samson's own people go after him. Verse 11. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? And he answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. See, there's that cycle of revenge. What I want you to pay attention to here is the attitude of God's people. It's striking. It's appalling. They have accepted Philistine rule. They've allowed the enemy to just take over. They're comfortable with their oppressors and the oppression. And they can't believe they're angry at Samson for upsetting the status quo. You should have just left everything as it was. What's wrong with you? It's been this way for 40 years. We, we don't want it to change. So here we see the, the deadly spiral of compromise in these verses. The spiral of compromise. They were content to let the enemy dominate them. They, they wanted to preserve peace at all costs. They don't seem to be the slightest bit embarrassed that the enemies of the Lord control them. They're not living up to their God-given calling. Now, they do put together an army for the first time in decades. And why is that army there? Not to go after the enemy. It's to get one of their own people. In fact, the champion. They obviously know he's powerful because they take 3,000 of their own guys to get him. They know he's trouble. And instead of saying, well, maybe God has brought us a champion, let's throw off the chains of oppression, what they do is they reject their deliverer. And people often reject saviors. And we reject the savior by denying that we need one. That's true in salvation. I mean, people don't put their trust in Christ because they don't realize that they're separated from God. They're lost in sin. They're broken. They need a savior. Until you recognize that you are lost in sin and you need to be reconciled to God, then there is no salvation, regardless of what you say you believe. People reject deliverers all too often. And God had made it clear that Samson was to be a deliverer of his people. But Israel denies that they need help. They're comfortable. They're compromising with the enemy. They like things as they are. Verse 12, they said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, swear to me you won't kill me yourselves. So Samson is going to give them permission to tie him up, to bind him. And his own countrymen uh, bind him and deliver him to the enemy. 
And when the Philistines see Samson hogtied and seemingly helpless, they start shouting. They think they've won. And Samson, well, this seems to be part of his plan. He catches them by surprise. Verse 14, the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. So, again, the spirit of the Lord empowers Samson to do this violent act, to take vengeance on the enemy. He uses a fresh Jawbone. So let me describe what that is. That means it hasn't been dead for very long. Uh, had it been dead for very long, the bone would dry out. It would become more brittle. It would become less heavy. Uh, so now that it's fresh, and just in case you ever need this information, I'm just telling you, it's fresh, it's more pliable, it's heavier. Samson uses this as a weapon and wipes out the enemy single-handedly. The battlefield is, in fact, piled high with corpses. Any Philistine who remained alive ran away in fear. So, to commemorate this event, Samson composes a poem, because of course you would do that. Uh, And uh, verse 16, Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. Now, I just need to explain to you, some translations attempt to give some poetry to this. Others don't. They just try to give you the, the, the literal sense because it doesn't come across in English the way it did in Hebrew, uh, which uh, this was originally written in. I think this translation captures the spirit of what Samson says, but the actual words that he used in Hebrew do rhyme. Uh, in Hebrew, the word for donkey is chamor, and the word for heaps is chomor. And they sound very similar. Uh, So Samson's rhyme was about the heaping up of piles of dead bodies that he created with simply a jawbone. Uh, One uh, scholar uh, produced this, uh, which I think is both accurate and rhyming. With the jawbone of an ass, I have piled them in a mass. So it sounds more like something that would find written on a restroom stall, which I do think is indicative to how Samson wrote it. Uh, kind of his boast. But uh, then after this um, point of exhaustion, I mean, he's exhausted from all of what he has done and dying of thirst. And so finally, Samson prays. Finally, we have some hint of his Godward direction out of his own mouth. And uh, verse 18, because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, you've given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So he recognizes that this power and what he had accomplished came from God, that this was God's doing. He gives God uh, the credit for that and then prays a desperate prayer. I need water. He has, there's no water around. God answers this prayer, and the text tells us that God creates a spring of water in the ground, and the writer uh, adds that this spring is still there years later and is called Enhenkor, which means the spring of one who cries out to God. Spring of one who cries out to God. So Samson uh, does uh, speak to the Lord, he prays, he receives this water, he's revived, and the chapter ends by telling us that he went on to lead Israel for 20 years, for the next 20 years. Now, there's more in Samson's story that we'll see in the next uh, chapter, but uh, that's, so what is this all about? What is this weird story about? Why is it in the Bible? How could it possibly be relevant to you and me here today, all these centuries later? Um, 
I, I think there are so many things that are relevant here, I, I don't have time to share them with you this morning, because I don't want you to forget that as messy and ugly as all this was, we've already learned that God is at work. In fact, bear in mind that God was at work even in this mess, that that's what we need to see. We need to see the hand of God in this weird, messy story. Because we learned back in the last chapter that uh, Samson uh, made this bad decision, a wrong decision, and yet we learned that all of this even was from the Lord. He was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, to deliver his people. And that's the truth that governs Samson's entire life. Everything he did, good, bad, and ugly, God was using to carry out his greater plan. Uh, it doesn't excuse his sin and wrong, but that's just how God is. That's how he works. Uh, here we see in these verses the deliverance of God in disguise. It's disguised in this very flawed deliverer. See, God's people were being assimilated into their culture, the the enemy culture, the Philistine culture, they were being sucked into that. They were being absorbed into this ungodly society. And, and they were blending in with this idol-worshiping nation. And that is not at all. That was a failure to what God had called them to do and to be in this world. That's why he had separated a people for himself. So that they would be different than the culture. That they would be a testimony. They'd be a light to the nations. And they were none of those things. And they weren't paying attention to God at all. So God raised up this flawed Savior in Samson, a Savior they didn't ask for, to bring them deliverance they didn't want or think they needed. Now this story has a couple of implications that I want to point out to you. A couple of implications. One, there is hope for flawed people like us. Uh, what, what relevance does this story have to us? Well, there's hope for flawed people like me and you. Because God uses this immature, hormone-driven, vengeful, violent man named Samson to carry out his purpose. Now, in fact, I, you might find this a little shocking. I do, just to think about it. I want to show you a comparison here. Samson was rejected by his own people. Jesus was, was rejected by his own people. Uh, Samson's friends delivered him to the enemy. Jesus' friend betrayed him to the enemy. Samson was handed over to be put to death. Jesus was handed over to be put to death. Samson did not resist those who came to get him. Jesus did not resist his accusers. Samson was bound with cords. Jesus' hands were bound. Surrounded by the enemy, Samson broke the cords that bound him. After three days in the tomb, Jesus broke the cords of death. Samson was victorious over the enemy. By his resurrection, Jesus won the victory over sin, death, and the evil one. So why this similarity between two so very opposite saviors? Samson was so sinful. Jesus, the perfect Son of God. The reality is that most of us are far more like Samson than we are Jesus. We're closer to that end of the scale. This guy who, who made sinful choices and bad bets and couldn't control his temper, was driven by hormones and revenge, he's far more interested in his own agenda than he is in God's glory, and yet God used him. In desperation, Samson discovered that his strength, his salvation, his purpose was in God alone. And he cried out to the Lord. And that's possible for every single one of us. 
Some of you are carrying an enormous load of baggage from the past. You're staggering under the weight of poor choices that you've made, of shattered relationships, uh, of broken promises. And it's such that every time you might think of doing something for God or, or being, uh, there's this maybe voice that you hear that says, You're a mess. You're unclean. You're a fake. You're a fraud. You're a phony. You're a hypocrite. Well, I've just got news for you that your past does not have to define you. That if you turn from your sin to Jesus, whatever that is, you receive his forgiveness. Your your past does not have to hold you back. Uh, Unless you reject your deliverer, unless you reject the only Savior, and you you say things like, well, I just want to leave things the way they are. Or or, these chains aren't too bad. Or these chains are too great for God. Or it's too late for me to change now. Don't reject the Savior. Take all that baggage and all that brokenness in your life to the cross of Christ and leave it there because he has won the victory by his death, burial, and resurrection. We're more like Samson than we care to admit, but because of Jesus, we don't have to stay there. We don't have to stay in our brokenness and our lostness. And by the power of the Spirit, even our emotions can be transformed. There's hope for flawed people like us. Second implication, we must guard against simply blending in with culture. We must guard. That's the, that's the warning here. We must guard against blending in with our culture. It's Israel, God's people, doesn't want conflict with the enemy. They don't even think there should be conflict with the enemy. Um, now, I, just a side note, I don't want you to equate Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, with the church, God's people in the New Testament. It's not the same. I don't want you to equate the United States of America with the church. The principle here is about how those who claim to follow Jesus live in a culture that does not follow Jesus. And so that's very relevant for you and for me today. If we absorb all the values and the, and the priorities and the passions of our culture, it's spiritual death. And so we must not think about things like money and sex and power and fame exactly the way the world thinks of those things. We, we can't. That's not the same. When our moral behavior is no different than the world around us, then we failed. When our attitudes and reactions are the same as the world around us, then then we have been assimilated into that culture. And I would say that there are are far too many Christians and far too many churches that have more assimilated into our world than have been the light of Christ. So what are we to do about that? There are some Christian leaders and churches who call for us to be in an all-out battle against our culture. And they might say things like, fight for what you believe. Take back the country. And they could use Samson as an example of that. Grab a jawbone and start making war. But let me tell you that piling up bodies is the Old Testament way of doing things. It's the way the world wages war. Jesus changed all of that. When God the Father sent His Son to be our Savior, that Savior was rejected by His own. And He was nailed to a cross. And what did He say about those who murdered Him? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he died. But even that seeming defeat was part of God's greater plan for victory. And Jesus rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. He died bearing our sin uh, and rescuing those who believe in him. And that's why Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's really, really good news. We've been made holy. Not by our goodness, 
but by the sacrifice of Jesus. What greater news can there be? So that by grace through faith in Jesus, I become part of the body of Christ. If your faith is in Jesus, you're part of the body of Christ. And because of his victory over sin and death for me, I'm able to represent him to my world. Through my oneness with Christ, by the power of the Spirit, I'm able to respond with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the weapons of the Spirit. The Spirit empowered Samson. His only weapons were vengeance and violence. The Spirit empowers us. Those are the weapons of this world. And notice this verse, 2 Corinthians 10.3. We don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. See, the, the vengeance and violence, that's the way the world wages war. And Jesus brought a whole new way. The power of the Spirit to accomplish far different things. As one writer puts it, rather than piling, filling the world with bodies, we fill the world with the body of Christ. Uh, that's how we stand apart from our culture. That's how we keep from blending in and camouflaging our identity in Jesus. Uh, How we stand out is not with anger and antagonism. It's grace, love, and truth. It's embodying Jesus to our world. And so really, this is the call that I would put for uh, you and for me today, to go fill your world with the body of Christ. That's our calling because of Jesus. To fill the world with the body of Christ. Now, for I don't know how long, the last few decades, there's been a culture war going on in the United States of America. And I would say that the culture wars, as they are being fought by many Christians, are mostly an unbiblical approach. And I probably stand in the minority when I say that, but they're mostly an unbiblical approach. Uh, They are waging war the way the world wages war, not the way Christ calls us to. And so, rebuking an employee who has the audacity to say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas is a ridiculous and wrong approach. Uh, Boycotting a store that has gender-neutral bathrooms is not the way to wage war. A few years ago, singer Lady Gaga posted a video of an encounter she had with a, a a self-identified Christian who was protesting her concert. I believe he was alone in his protest. And she drove by in her limousine and she rolled down the window and began to engage this, this guy. And, uh, and she said, by means of defending herself, she said, we really believe in God at my show. And he said, your pervert ways don't quite equate to what God is all about. And then he said something else a little bit even more negative. Now, I'm not saying he's wrong in what he said, but he certainly is wrong in how he said it. That's not how we fight the battle. Attacking a culture that ignores God or distorts his truth is not what God has called us to do. Uh, Neither can those who claim to follow Jesus simply blend in and adopt the values and, and sins of our culture. I just read this week of of United Presbyterian Church in my home city of Binghamton, New York, has made national news because of what they did. They recently hosted a 15-foot-tall pagan sculpture on their communion table. Now, this did not happen during a worship service, but they were showing this and made news for it. This sculpture was of a Slavic god of war and fertility on their communion table. Very odd. Very wrong. 
But much more frequently, what we see churches in the United States doing in particular is trying so hard to be relevant that they cross the line into ridiculous. And I could give you hours of examples of that, and you've probably seen some, but let me give you one that just came up. Uh, Pastor Frankie Floyd, who dressed up as Disney character Prince Ali and sang a rendition of a song from Aladdin, and this was part of his sermon series on At the Movies. Uh, this, this wasn't some other event. This was a Sunday morning service uh, where that was the beginning of his of his sermon not going to happen here uh, so, uh, and and what that sermon series is not based from the Bible and applied to our world. In fact, instead, it takes movies and applies them to the Bible and shows you some connection of truth. That's the opposite way of how things should work. So as the people of God, I give you those several examples. How do we respond to a broken world? Not by camouflaging to look just like them. That's what Israel did. Not by attacking with anger and violence. That's what Samson did. No, instead of heaping up dead bodies, God calls us to be the body of Christ. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 12, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So every one of you who names the name of Jesus, who has cried out to him for forgiveness and grace and mercy, you are part of his body. And in spite of your flaws and your weaknesses, in spite of the times you've camouflaged your spiritual identity and fallen short, in spite of your brokenness and your past, let the light of Christ shine through you and fill your world. Don't blend in. Don't wage war like the world does. Instead, by the power of the Holy Spirit, show our broken world love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's pray. Lord, you have called us to be your people in this place, and we don't always get right how that should work. So give us wisdom, Lord, to know how to live in our world, to fill this world with the body of Christ, that we would be your people in our workplace, in our school, in our home, in our neighborhood that reflect your love and grace and truth. We ask this in the powerful name of our Savior, our Deliverer, our Redeemer, our King, Jesus. Amen.